Okay, uh, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today is Wednesday, February 6th, and I am recording from a brand new room, a room I've never recorded in before. Um, it's small. It's actually, it's not true. It's the biggest room I've ever recorded in. Uh, but it, the problem is it's really echoey. It's very, very echoey. It's uh, caused a lot of problems. I recorded a podcast yesterday, and I didn't record it at all. I didn't put it out because it didn't sound any good. And uh, the biggest problem is the linoleum floor. It's a floor like a you would find in an elementary school cafeteria. That causes a lot of echoing. So if the audio sounds not great in this episode, I, I apologize. I am working on getting a carpet in this room. And solving some of that problem. But if you're watching on YouTube, you can see kind of behind the scenes what it looks like. This is my room. You know, people always complain about how that I don't have a good enough background and this and that. And I don't think they realize I literally record this podcast out of my bedroom. And uh, that's the best I got. Um, I want to just jump right into it. We just had the Super Bowl. The Patriots beat the Rams 13 to 3. And uh, I loved it. I loved the game. Some people said the game was boring. And I get it. I understand. You know, it wasn't a high-scoring game. Uh, and really, I will say this. If you hate it, I don't know why you watched it. A lot of people were complaining. If you don't like watching the game, don't watch the game. For me, personally, I thought it was a great game. Um, it was intense. The Super Bowl reminded me a lot of a playoff baseball game. There was this feeling where you know that one play could change the entire outcome of this game. Kind of like when you have a guy on second base in a, in a major league playoff game. You're like, oh, that guy's in scoring position, and if he scores, everything will change. This game felt the same way. You know, defense creates tension. A blocked punt, a huge kickoff return, a fumble. Maybe a safety falls over, and that leads to a big touchdown for uh, one of the teams. That would have changed everything, and this game had that kind of feeling, a a sense of of tension. And it's interesting, you know, playoff baseball has that. The NFL has that. Basketball doesn't have that. Uh, And that's, that's what I really love about playoff baseball, and I felt the similar feeling while watching the Super Bowl. A lot of people didn't like it. For me, it was a tense waiting game. I was sweating bullets. I want to bookmark something. With nine minutes left in the game, the Patriots had a really short drive, a five-play drive, a little over two and a half minutes. Bang, 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 touchdown. That is what happened for the Patriots. That made made the Super Bowl 10 to 3. The Patriots would extend their lead to 13 to 3. That was an insurmountable lead. The Rams could not overcome. And, uh, you know, that idea of one big play could change anything. It felt like that. You know, the game didn't work out that way, but I was on my seat because I knew that I wanted the Patriots to win personally. And I knew that if Tom Brady threw an interception, if there was a fumble, if something happened, the Rams could easily, very easily take the lead and win the game. And that's what stood out to me. You know, both defenses were great, but what stood out to me was the fact the Patriots made three huge mistakes early on in the Super Bowl, and the Rams were unable to capitalize. Beginning of the game, Tom Brady threw an interception. He made a bad read, threw a bad, threw a bad pass, he got picked off. And the Rams were unable to take advantage of that. They went three and out. Later in the game, later in the first quarter, Tom Brady fumbled. The Rams couldn't get on it. As the Rams couldn't get on it, the Patriots recovered, crisis averted. And then even farther into the first quarter, the Patriots kicked a field goal and missed. Three big mistakes by the New England Patriots. An interception, a fumble, and a missed field goal. And the Rams could not capitalize on any of those things. That's what I can't get out of my head. The Rams had opportunities, and they couldn't take advantage. 
Now, the Rams' offense was dominated by the Patriots' defense. We, we know, we, we talked about this all, off, all season. Jared Goff's biggest flaw is he really, really struggles when you create pressure against him. When you hit him, when there are bodies around him, he struggles. His accuracy falls off a cliff. He doesn't make as precise of throws, and he really, really struggles. The Patriots got to Jared Goff. The Patriots hit Jared Goff. They confused him with pressure. He had no idea where pressure was coming from. That was a huge, huge difference in the Super Bowl. So the Rams quarterback, Jared Goff, he struggled. He will be okay, though. I think a lot of people are saying Jared Goff doesn't have it. They're going to give up on Jared Goff. It's not true at all. I saw something later in the fourth quarter where Jared Goff stepped up into pressure, made a great throw. Tony Romo talked about it. And uh, that, that's exactly what you got to do against pressure. you got to step up into pressure, take the hit, deliver a good football. The problem was Jared Goff simply couldn't do that consistently enough. You know, the final interception he threw, it looked like he panicked and threw the ball up for grabs. You can't have that and be a successful quarterback in the NFL, at least not a top-level Super Bowl-winning quarterback. Jared Goff will be okay. He just has to learn how to more consistently handle pressure. When guys hit him, when the blitz is getting to him, he's got to learn how to handle that a lot better than he did on Sunday. But, but I can acknowledge anybody who was playing against the Patriots on Sunday would have struggled. Their, their schemes were unbelievable. They created blitz. They had a lot of creative play calling uh, where linebackers were blitzing and getting pressure on Jared Goff. And the problem was, often when a linebacker blitzes, quarterbacks love that. Because if the middle linebacker comes at me, I know there's a void and an open space in the middle of the field. The problem was you couldn't calculate where a linebacker was coming from. The guys were walking all over the place. They disguised it really well. And so if you don't know where the pressure is coming from, you can't prepare for it. And that is what the Patriots did flawlessly. They flawlessly executed their game plan. The other thing the Patriots did really, really well were stunts. A stunt is where defensive linemen start off in one direction and then cross paths later after the snap. They start going right, then they cross paths. And it makes it really, really hard for an offensive line to make up for that and to catch up and try to block somebody. Only one of them has to work, and one of them often did. That comes down to coaching and execution. The reason why the Patriots were able to generate so much pressure on Jared Goff was because of their scheme. You know, a lot of people run stunts. A lot of people try this concept. It's not a, a novelty at all. But the way the Patriots executed them is unparalleled. That showed an attention to detail. Their guys are paying attention, and their guys executed their coach's game plan flawlessly. You know, you know, it's, I think it's interesting. Tom Brady was underdressed the entire game. Tom Brady constantly had pressure coming after him. He was hit. He was getting thrown to the ground. The way the Rams generated pressure on defense was their defensive line was just better physically than the Patriots' offensive line. They dominated physically. And I don't want to discredit the Patriots, but here's what's so remarkable about the Patriots. The Patriots did not generate pressure because of a physical domination. They did it with schematics. They had a coaching play design. They followed the play design, executed it. Again, the word is flawlessly, unbelievably. So I credit the players. They executed the plan, but the plan is why the Patriots were able to get pressure on the Rams. It wasn't their physical dominance. I don't know. I will, I will acknowledge the Patriots often struggled early. They really struggled. I know the end tally for the Patriots was that they had 407 total yards of offense. It certainly didn't feel like it. I can explain why and what happened. Uh, but the Rams' defensive game plan was fantastic. It was phenomenal. They moved their safeties really far inside, trying to take away 
short st intermediate stuff with Julian Edelman and Rob Gronkowski. Because what the Rams knew is they had favorable matchups on the outside. The Rams have two great corners, Marcus Peters and Aqib Tlaib. They shut down the Patriots receivers, Chris Hogan and Cord Corderell Patterson. The Patriots could not win a matchup on the outside. They were dominated. They could not throw the ball deep downfield because of the Rams' game plan and their superior corners. What we really saw was the Patriots struggled without Josh Gordon. They needed a, a, a big outside wide receiver that could win a one-on-one -on -one matchup downfield. They didn't have it. That's why they did not score for so long during the game. However, ultimately, the Patriots found success. The Patriots, in the end, were able to create some kind of success on offense. They scored 13 points after all. And the reason is because they kept running the ball. That showed patience. They ran it. They ran the ball. They ran the ball. They got stuffed over and over and over again. They didn't have success. They had three and outs. They had drives come up short. But that five-play drive I mentioned earlier in the segment, that five-play drive late in the fourth quarter, they used play action, and that created a great matchup for Rob Gronkowski and allowed him to get a move, actually on a guy I know, Samson Ibukam, downfield. It's really, really fascinating to me. Uh, the Rams and the Patriots both used play action a lot in this game. Play action is where you fake the run and try to trick the, uh, the, the linemen, try to trick, trick the linebackers on defense. You trick the defense into thinking it's a run, then run a pass play. The Patriots did it really flawlessly. The Patriots would fake the run. The Rams linebackers would step forward towards line of scrimmage. They would be out of position by a step or two, and it would create a mismatch downfield for guys like Rob Gronkowski. It created leverage. The reason why this worked is because the Patriots kept running the ball over and over and over again. Now, for whatever reason, I have no idea. I don't know if Todd Gurley was hurt. I don't know what happened. But for whatever reason, the Rams were not patient running the football. They did not stay committed to running the ball. And later in the game, they would fake the run. And it was ineffective because nobody bought it. Nobody said, you're not running the ball. You're down seven points. You're down 10 points. This run fake is ridiculous. And the Patriots were able to call the Rams bluff because they knew it was a fake. I think it's so weird. The Rams threw the ball 38 times. The Rams threw the ball 38 separate times. Now, in contrast, they only ran the ball 18 times. Todd Gurley had 10 carries. Todd Gurley, they're all pro running back. An MVP finalist last year only had 10 carries for 35 yards. C.J. Anderson, their backup running back, had seven carries for 22 yards. And a wide receiver, Robert Woods, had one carry on a fly sweep for five yards. If they fake the run, it's completely ineffective because nobody believed they were going to be running the football. They didn't stay patient. They didn't keep running over and over and over again. The reason why the Patriots eventually found success on offense that the Rams were unable to find was the Patriots were patient running the football. If you look at the final stats for the Patriots, they were more balanced. The Patriots threw the ball 35 times and had 32 run plays. That is why the Patriots outlasted the Rams. Their play action worked. The Rams, it didn't. Nobody bought the Rams' play action. The way the Patriots played was they created pressure on defense. They pressured Jared Goff. They showed patience running the football on offense, even at great cost early in the game, but it was a long-term investment that paid off for the Patriots, and that is why the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Um, everybody talks about the Patriots' system, and, and I don't like that term. I really am not a fan. I, I don't think calling the Patriots, saying, when people say the Patriots win because of their system, it's not the right way to describe the way the Patriots win. 
It's not some formula. The Patriots don't have a secret formula. If we run these five plays, we're going to win Super Bowls. It's not how it works. The reason why the Patriots have won six Super Bowls and, and had nine appearances in the Super Bowl since 2001 is because of their culture. The Patriots win because of the culture they have in place. It's fascinating to me. You look over the years, the Patriots have won all kinds of different ways. Over the years, with early Tom Brady in the 2000s, the early like 2001, 2002, those first two Super Bowls, the Patriots were really run heavy. They were a run heavy team that was defensive led. Then later on in Brady's career, they won, they got to a Super Bowl with Randy Moss by airing out the ball. They were a pass first team. Then they got two tight ends. They had, at one point, they had Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski, an offense still led by the passing game. They played the Patriots, they played the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. That was a team led by the passing game with short intermediate routes. That was Julian Edelman. They w- went to a Super Bowl with Wes Welker. And now in the Rams Super Bowl, they've shifted the way they play again to a run heavy team that wins by playing great defense. But it's not just all season they play one way. Even in this season, they've won different separate ways. On October 14th, the Patriots beat the Chiefs 43-40. to And they were led by their offense. Months later, on February 3rd, 2019, in the Super Bowl against the Rams, the Patriots won the game 13-3, to and they were led by their defense. They grounded out. They ran the ball a bunch. They were very patient. And it's a testament to the Patriots. The way they win... They win in so many different ways and because they design a plan. The way the Patriots system, their quote system, their culture works is they design their game plan around the strengths of the players on their roster. They don't rely on one player's talents, one player's ability, and they don't rely on a certain set of plays. They rely on being smarter and executing better than everybody else. You know, saying the Patriots win because of their system insinuates, again, that there's some kind of magical key to success. We run these five plays, and we're going to make it. Here's what happens. The Patriots hire really smart players who execute and do exactly what their coaching says. If you don't do what your coaching says, if you don't do your job, that's a thing the Patriots say in their locker room. If you don't do your job, you're not in New England anymore. The coaches create a game plan. The Patriots players, this is the key, the players trust their coaching. They execute the plan the coaches give them. And that's what's unparalleled. That's the way the Patriots execute. A great example is the way the Patriots ran stunts on Sunday in the Super Bowl. Running stunts with a defensive line is not an uncommon thing. Everybody does it. It's where a defensive line cross after the ball has been snapped. They start off one direction. Later on the down, they cross and try to create an opening against the offensive line. Everybody does it. But the Patriots happen to do it better than anybody else. Not because they're physically gifted, because they're smarter, they pay closer attention to detail, and they listen and trust their coaching. That's how the Patriots culture works. If you do your job, we will win. They've been to nine Super Bowls. The Patriots have won six of them. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick set the tone. It's not the system necessarily. It's the culture. Culture is why the Patriots win. Guys listen to their coaching, they buy in, and they execute exactly what the coaches want them to with an insane amount of attention to detail. That is why the Patriots win. That is what people mean when they say the Patriots system works. It's actually the Patriots culture. Uh, you know, briefly, I will say I'm really sad for the Rams. The Rams had a great season. Number 50, Samson Ibukam, 
uh, is a guy I played in high school with. I feel really sad for him. I'm heartbroken. I can't imagine what it's like to lose the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, I lost a game in high school in pl- the playoffs, and that broke me. I can't imagine losing a game like the Super Bowl on national TV. Uh, Samson, I'm really sorry. Maybe we can get you on the show someday. I'd love to hear um, your thoughts about that. Um, but I, I'm really heartbroken for the Rams. I'm sad for Andrew Whitworth. Andrew Whitworth has never won a playoff game before this season. Andrew Whitworth is a left tackle for the Rams. He seems like one of the better guys in the NFL, just a, a great all-around human, a good dad. And um, you know, he spent years with the Bengals not winning playoff games, probably being miserable. And it was cool to see Andrew Whitworth finally find some success this season. And uh, you know, I'm sad for them. I'm sad for the Rams in general, man. The way they built their team was so cool. They took risks. The Rams spent a ton of money. They went after big stars. I mean, they just came up just short. They got so close. And so I really still respect what the Rams did this year. I I admire them. I think it was so cool the way they built their roster and they built their team. And uh, it's sad for them that ultimately they came up short. But really, a great season for the Rams. I want to give them a round of applause because they really did some good stuff this year. Now, uh, we got a great show today. We're going to talk a lot about the Alliance of American Football. It's the AAF. We'll do a season preview. We're going to talk about the Bengals' new head coach. We'll talk about the Dolphins' new head coach. We'll talk about whether or not the Patriots are lucky. And we've got a lot of good stuff ahead. Remember, you can subscribe to Strong Opinion Sports on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on YouTube. You can find the full entire hour-long show on YouTube. You can also find shorter breakout clips like the one uh, like, like little five-minute clips on YouTube. And, and help me grow by telling your friends about this show. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. It's help me grow by telling your friends about this show. Um, I want to talk about something personal. Something that's been going on in my personal life. Um, if you follow Strong Opinion Sports, if you've been following for the last couple months, um, like a lot of you have, a lot of you sent me personal messages recently. It's been really, really cool. Um, you, if you've been following, though, you've noticed that the last couple months have been really hectic. I left Washington State University. Um, I was home for a little bit. I've been working on something behind the scenes. It's been a really, um, a, a very, very stressful situation and circumstance. And I had to make hundreds of phone calls and get things approved. And uh, again, man, this last, the last two months for me have been probably one of the more stressful times of my entire life. And it finally, finally paid off. I'm happy to announce... Um, I just moved to Tacoma, Washington. I just moved to Tacoma, Washington. Uh, today was my first day of classes at Pacific Lutheran University. It's awesome. I'm so excited. I transferred here and joined the football team. I play quarterback. And it's a small D3 school, but I don't really care. I'm happy to be playing football again. And uh, I, I will say I did consider bigger schools. I talked to some coaches at D1 schools, D1 AA schools, D2 schools. They were all strictly walk-on opportunities um, and, and every school I considered was a coach, was a, a, a team with a great head coach that had a good culture in place. The two problems I found with bigger schools was one, they told me you're going to be like eighth string quarterback. We're going to bury you on the roster. You'll be like the scout team quarterback and you'll probably never have a chance to play. And that was okay. I was, I was kind of still interested because, you know, the thought of saying my senior year when we played Michigan it sounded like, hey, I'll, I'll be a backup at a school like that and play against big teams. Um, but ultimately, the problem was they said you can't do your podcast anymore. And we're not really comfortable with you doing strong opinion sports and uh, playing football here. And so that's why PLU is a perfect fit for me. I, I love my head coach. He's a great guy. He's a good man with a good culture in place. Uh, I get to keep doing strong opinion sports. 
and I get a chance to play. The starting quarterback job is open, and I get a chance to go and try to earn the job. Um, I want to be very clear, though. It's, it's important to me to be around good people. I love my head coach. I may never play. I'm prepared to never, ever be the starting quarterback here. It's very possible that I don't earn the job and I'm not good enough. And um, I'm okay with that. I want to just have fun with this. I want to be around good people. I learned a lot watching Jalen Hurts, the quarterback at Alabama the last couple of years. Jalen Hurts lost his starting quarterback job. He was the backup. And he had fun with it. He enjoyed being on the roster. He, he was really nice and supported the starting quarterback to a tongue of Aloha. And he was there when his team needed him. He was ready to go and helped his team in any way he could. I find that incredibly inspiring. If I'm a Jalen Hurts at this program, that's cool with me. Um, you know, I get, I get to still have fun. I get to practice. I get to watch film. But don't get me wrong. I'm going to work my ass off and try to do everything I can to become the starting quarterback. Um, I will say, this is really important. You got to listen really closely to this. Here is how me playing college football again is going to impact strong opinion sports. Listen very, very closely to what I'm going to say next. Listen close. A few months from now, during spring ball, strong opinion sports is going to take a three-week break. During spring ball, I will not do any podcasts at all. Three-week break. A three-week break. It's not too bad. Then in the summer, I'll pick up shows again. We'll keep doing shows all, all through the summer. And my last show in summer, the last, like around the end of August, I'll do my NFL predictions and preview podcast. I'll put that out. And then I will leave home and go to fall camp. And during fall camp, during my regular season, I will not do any podcast. I'm going to take a complete break. Won't make any videos. I'm going to focus on football. And what that means, I'm going to miss the first 10 weeks of the NFL season. But I'll be right back at Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is when our season usually ends. And I'll be able to pick up the podcast 10 weeks into the NFL season, talk about my predictions, where I was wrong, where I was right. At Thanksgiving, we'll pick right back up. So the truth is, playing college football is really going to have a minimal impact on strong opinion sports. I get to do the show all summer. I can do the show all spring leading up to spring ball, take a break for spring ball, and take a break for my regular season. It's not that bad. I'm really excited uh, to do both my podcast and play college football. And the truth is, man, I'm so excited. It's been a long journey to get here. And um, I just, I'm so pumped. I get to play football again. To practice. Like, I am so excited to go to practice again. And there was a point in my life where I was burned out and practice didn't sound fun. You know, I played college football for a year. Long, you know, years ago. I was a dumb, immature 18-year-old kid. And then, uh, you know, my brother died and that changed my whole life. I and mean, it's been a long, long journey to get here. Um, but, you know, I, I turn 22 next month. And my fear was that when I turn 50, I don't want to look back on my life and have regret. And playing college football again is something I desperately want to do. Football is my favorite thing in the entire world. And so I, I called up a bunch of coaches and made it happen. And Pacific Lutheran is a perfect fit for me. I'm really excited. You know, I get to play football again. I love my head coach. He's a great guy. He's a good man. I get to do my podcast. It's only two hours from my hometown. Oh, and by the way, they do have my major, although let's be honest, I'm not here for, I'm here to play football personally. Um, but I just, I love the direction my life is heading. I love the support everyone's given me online and uh, I'm just going to have fun with this and enjoy the adventure. So thank you so much. And uh, man, listen, I'm going to have fun playing college football. I want to move on though. Um, enough of me. I, I, it's weird to talk about myself on this podcast, I will admit, because this is not a Zach Schaumler podcast. This is a, a sports show and um, I want to talk about some Nick Foles news. So the Eagles have been trying to keep their backup quarterback, Nick Foles, 
on their roster so that they can trade him away rather than allowing him to walk away in free agency. First, the Eagles tried to sign him to his, they tried to use his team option, which is $20 million going to Nick Foles. And Nick Foles opted out of it. Nick Foles said, I don't want to be here anymore. He opted out of his contract for $2 million. And now, in order to keep his rights, the Eagles are going to have to franchise tag Nick Foles. What that means is it's, it's a contract where they pay him for one more year. He gets paid in the top percentage of all quarterbacks in the NFL. Makes a lot of money. And I would do this. If I were the Eagles, I would 100% franchise tag Nick Foles. I think it's a good move. Because the Eagles want to control where he goes next. There are two teams in the Eagles division. The Giants and the Redskins that both need quarterbacks. And the last thing you want to do is trade Nick Foles to a team like the Giants or the Redskins and play Nick Foles two times a year. They can, if they trade him, they can send him to the Jaguars, the Dolphins, teams far away. They'll never play and don't have to worry about Nick Foles again. The other thing, too, is the Eagles can get something for Nick Foles. If you let Nick Foles walk away in free agency, you miss out on an opportunity to get draft picks or get another player or earn something in return for Nick Foles. If they trade him away, they might be able to get something of value, like a third-round pick. Who knows? So I 100% think the Eagles are doing the right thing in franchise tagging and keeping Nick Foles around on their roster. Now, the impact on Nick Foles is very interesting to me. It, what it does is creates a series of events that we will we'll see how they play out. So, first of all, Nick Foles getting franchise tagged by the Eagles will mean that he makes a lot more money next year. He'll make more money than he would have if he just signed his team option. He'll be paid in the higher, highest percentage of quarterbacks in the NFL. What's interesting, the interesting wrinkle, though, is it's only a one-year deal. So unless Nick Foles signs a contract extension before the season, if he's traded to the Jaguars and doesn't sign a contract extension, what he will be doing is playing on a one-year contract to prove his worth, to earn another contract down the road. It's very bizarre. If he was a free agent, he could go to the Jaguars, sign a three-year deal worth whatever million dollars. If he gets franchise tagged and traded, whatever team picks up Nick Foles only has him for one year, a big contract, unless they re-sign him, obviously. Uh, that's really interesting. I think it's going to put a lot of pressure on Nick Foles. I don't know it's going to impact him too much. I think it's sad he doesn't get to pick where he's going to go. Unlikely, you know, if you're a free agent, you get to decide whatever team you want to join. He probably doesn't get that option. But I think ultimately, where would Nick Foles have gone anyways? He probably would have gone to the Jaguars. So we'll see if the, we'll see if the Jaguars trade for him. We'll see if they give him a contract extension. And maybe Nick Foles is going to be playing on a one-year contract and have to earn his right to have more years on his contract and earn more money down the road. Uh, that's an interesting wrinkle, and I cannot wait to see how it plays out. <clears throat> I'm going to drink some water first real quick. We're going to talk about the Bengals. The Bengals have hired Zach Taylor to be their new head coach. First of all, I love Zach Taylor. Uh, he spells his name Z-A-C the same way I do. Zach Taylor is the former Rams quarterback coach. He just finished with the Rams in the Super Bowl. And uh, he's a quarterback guy. Zach Taylor played quarterback at Wake Forest, and he finished his career at Nebraska. This guy understands quarterbacks. And my main question when I heard that Zach Taylor was being hired by the Bengals to be their head coach was, is Zach Taylor being hired by the Bengals to help Andy Dalton, the Bengals' current quarterback? Or is he being brought in to move on from Andy Dalton and bring in a new quarterback and, and build a new franchise around a different quarterback? That's what I want to know. Because I'm not sold on Andy Dalton. If I was Zach Taylor, 
I don't know how excited I would be to tie my future, to tie my success and my employment to the abilities of Andy Dalton. Because if Andy Dalton sucks, you lose your job. And I don't know that I'd be comfortable with that. Just a note. I don't know. We'll find out. Maybe, maybe he believes in Andy Dalton. Maybe he thinks he can help Andy Dalton. It's very possible that's his thought process. I have no idea. Now, Zach Taylor's 35 years old. And personally, I, have, I've, I don't care at all. And Sean McVay's a young coach. Young coaches is the way the NFL's trending recently. Young coaches are not a problem. They can win in the NFL without a doubt. However, Zach Taylor is a risk. He's never been a head coach before. And I think that in this case, taking a risk is really good. The Bengals haven't taken a risk in a long, long time. They've had their head coach, their former head coach, their previous head coach, Marvin Lewis, was in Cincinnati for 16 years. He was incredibly mediocre. In that time, Marvin Lewis had 131 wins and 122 losses. He never won a playoff game. Maybe, and he might have with Carson Palmer. I don't want to say that. I'm actually, I just know with Andy Dalton, he's 0-4 in the playoffs. But the thought process with the Bengals is you can't do the same thing every time and expect different results. At some point, you got to change something. That is what the Bengals finally did. But again, I want to note, I'm not sure that Marvin Lewis was the only problem in Cincinnati. I'm not a big believer of Andy Dalton. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Zach Taylor completely turns around Andy Dalton's career. That would be fantastic. But you realize the Bengals have had options. They've had really, really good players on their team for the last couple of years. They had Joe Mixon as a running back, Giovanni Bernard, another good running back, Tyler Eifert at tight end, A.J. Green. The Bengals have had weapons, and Andy Dalton has not been able to succeed at a high level recently. He's never won a playoff game. Andy Dalton is 0-4 in the playoffs. That's concerning. It's not a number I want to hear. And so I'm not convinced that Marvin Lewis was the only problem in Cincinnati. Now, it's worth noting the Bengals have hired the Raiders quarterback coach, Brian Callahan, to be their offensive coordinator. They're also reportedly trying to hire Jack Del Rio to be their defensive coordinator. Jack Del Rio is a great, great idea. I hope the Bengals can track him down and bring him on to their franchise. Jack Del Rio has a lot of experience as an NFL head coach. He's been a head coach for 12 years, 12 seasons in the NFL, nine years in Jacksonville with the Jaguars, three years with the Raiders. Uh, look, he's had not had a great career. He's been, he has 93 wins and 94 losses. He wasn't a big success, but... He's had really, really valuable experience. Uh, a comparison I can think of when I think of the Bengals' current plan appears to, we appear to see is I compare it to the Rams. The Rams have a young, offensive-minded head coach and an older, veteran defensive coordinator. That is what I think we see. We're going to see a similar prospect, similar idea in Cincinnati. A young, offensive head coach in Zach Taylor and a veteran, savvy, experienced defensive coordinator in Jack Del Rio. I think that's a great, smart combination. I think experience really matters. And if that's the game plan for the Bengals, I'm on board. I can't wait to see it happen. I hope Zach Taylor can revive Andy Dalton's career. I think you know Jack Del Rio is a good hire, and I cannot wait to see what happens in Cincinnati. The Miami Dolphins have hired Brian Flores to be their next head coach. He's a former Patriots linebackers coach. He also was a defensive play caller in New England. First of all, the guy's a genius. I'm a big fan of what he did in the Super Bowl. He really is a great defensive mind. However, I am concerned that Brian Flores is really going to struggle 
with the Dolphins. I, for a number of reasons, I'll list them now. I, I don't think the Dolphins are a good place I would want to be. And I, I wouldn't want to be the Dolphins head coach if I were him. First of all, I don't believe in the Dolphins owner. I think he prematurely fired the former head coach, Adam Gase. Um, he didn't like Adam Gase's level of success. The problem was Adam Gase never had a quarterback. And for crying out loud, Adam Gase won games with Brock Osweiler at quarterback. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that it's fair to judge Adam Gase's success on his years with Ryan Tannehill and Brock Osweiler. Another thing we've heard recently is that the Dolphins are releasing their former quarterback, Ryan Tannehill. Now, the Dolphins are in the AFC East, which means that not only does Brian Flores have to play the New England Patriots two times a year, but with the Dolphins, Brian Flores has the only team in the division that doesn't have a quarterback. The Jets have Josh, sorry, the Jets have Sam Darnold, the Bills have Josh Allen, the Patriots have Tom Brady. The Dolphins have nothing. That's really, really bad. So either you know, they're going to have to trade for Nick Foles, which isn't a terrible idea, or they're going to have to draft a quarterback. If the Dolphins draft a quarterback, that is really, really concerning. Now, historically, defensive-minded head coaches like Brian Flores really, really struggle with young quarterbacks. Let's look at the last recent quarterback, at least recent defensive-minded head coach you've had rookie quarterbacks. Steve Wilkes, the Cardinals coach last year, rookie quarterback Josh Rosen, got fired. Oh, well, that's a good start. How about the Jets firing Todd Bowles after one season with rookie quarterback Sam Darnold? John Fox, the Bears' former head coach, got fired after one season with Mitch Trubisky, a rookie quarterback. Jeff Fisher was a disaster with rookie quarterback Jared Goff. My problem is the Dolphins don't have a quarterback. They don't have a stable owner. And Brian Flores is a defensive-minded head coach, a genius, a great defensive-minded head coach, a guy, of course, I'd want him to be my defensive coordinator. The problem is they don't have a quarterback. And historically, defensive-minded head coaches do not succeed with young rookie quarterbacks. At least not recently, not in recent years. I hope he succeeds. He's a defensive genius. He's probably a great guy. But I see concern and I see really a lot of struggling on the horizon for Brian Flores, the next Dolphins head coach. Okay, um, let's talk about the Alliance of American Football. The AAF is a new professional football league that starts this weekend. I'm really, really excited. I can't wait. Uh, they're doing a lot of things right. They have big names involved. They have a good plan that I believe in. I mean, I'm actually, I, I plan to talk about the AAF a lot. If I'm, gonna, if I'm the only one on the internet that's championing it, I will do that. I don't know if a lot of people are going to talk about it. They have my attention. I'm really interested. In fact, I'm going down to San Diego later in this month, later in February, to go watch a San Diego Fleet game. It's the, the Fleet and Atlanta. It's going to be a great game. Really excited. And um, so I'm, I'm doing this video. I'm calling this my... AAF season preview. To be honest, this league is completely made up of players that I'm unfamiliar with. There's only a couple guys, a couple names I know, because uh, it's a developmental league. And what that means is we're seeing guys that haven't made it yet. So it's hard to make predictions and come up with. I have no idea what team is going to be the best in this league. I, I can't know that without watching the product first. What I am going to do is run through all eight teams, talk about their coaches, and talk about the people involved in this league, and then give you two players that I think are interesting to watch and pay attention to this cup upcoming season in the AAF. So the first thing I love about the AAF, there's eight total teams, and they all have really, really good, fascinating head coaches involved. So the Atlanta Legends are coached by longtime Vikings head coach Brad Childers. He's a great coach. He took the Vikings to the playoffs a couple times. And uh, his offensive coordinator 
is Michael Vick, none other than the great, illustrious Michael Vick. Now, speaking of legends, Steve Spurrier is the head coach of the Orlando Apollo. Steve Spurrier was a longtime Florida head coach in the SEC. Then he moved to, to the, he was at the, with the South Carolina Gamecocks for about 10 years. Steve Spurrier is a legend. Having him involved with the AAF is fantastic. Now, the Salt Lake Stallions are led by Dennis Erickson, a, a great head, former head coach in his own right. He actually coached at my former college, Washington State University. Then he moved on. He coached with the U in Miami. He won a national championship, I think two of them, with the Miami Hurricanes. That's a great head coach. A guy who'd retired came back out of retirement to coach in the AAF. The Memphis Express's head coach is Mike Singletary, a former Bears linebacker. He also was a, a previous 49ers head coach. The San Antonio Commanders are led by Mike Riley, a guy who was a head coach at Oregon State University for 14 years. In those 14 years, he went 93-80. and 80. I actually watched him beat USC live in or- at Oregon State in Corvallis, Oregon. The Rick Neuheisel, former UCLA coach, is the head coach of the Arizona Hotshots. Former Rams head coach Mike Martz is the head coach of the San Diego Fleet. If you remember back in the day with Kurt Warner, when the Rams went to the Super Bowl and lost to the Patriots, Mike Martz was actually the head coach of the Rams at that time. And only one coach of the eight uh, head coaches in the AAF, only one of them is someone I'd never heard of before. His name is Tim Lewis. Tim Lewis is the head coach of the Birmingham Iron. Um, apparently, I looked him up. He's been an assistant since the 80s. He was an assistant at Texas A&M, SMU, Pittsburgh, the Seahawks. He's been all over the NFL, all over college football. This is Tim Lewis's first head coaching job. And if the entire league was made up of Tim Lewis's, a bunch of guys who'd never coached before, I would be really concerned. There's only one n- new head coach who's never been a head coach before. And all the other names in the AAF, all the other lists, you know, Brad Childress, Dennis Erickson, Steve Spur, these are all names that are really, really notable. And that's why I really feel like the AAF is legit. The AAF not only has self-awareness, but it has really big names involved. Again, Mike Riley, Steve Spurrier, Dennis, Dennis Erickson. Steve Spurrier is 73 years old. He came out of retirement. If this was a waste of time, Steve Spurrier would not be here. He would not be involved. I, that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of confidence in the AAF. Now, the AAF is a developmental league. What that means is this is a stepping stone to get to the NFL. It's kind of like the G League or minor league baseball. You know, one YouTube commenter, a guy commented on my channel saying, you know, the AAF is an NFL competitor. They're trying to take the NFL on. That's just stupid. It's wrong. It's stupid. It's not true. Um, The AAF named their broadcast partners for this upcoming season. It's CBS and NFL Network. What that means is The NFL Network is going to be broadcasting AAF games on their network. That's not a competitor. That's a little brother. But that's okay. They're playing games during the NFL offseason, and it's it's a really good thing. It's like Again, it's like minor league baseball or the G League, except I'm more interested because I miss football. During the middle of the offseason, the NFL offseason, I want to watch football. And we're going to get to watch guys who haven't yet made it in the NFL and probably are looking for a shot. That is what I'm really excited to watch in the AAF. Now, it's interesting. There's a a really fascinating quarterback competition in Memphis between former Penn State quarterback Christian Hackenberg and former LSU quarterback Zach Mettenberger. It looks like right now Zach Mettenberger will be the starting quarterback in Memphis. But the two players I'm most excited to watch um, are Arizona Hotshots quarterback Trevor Knight and Birmingham Iron quarterback Luis Perez. I have no idea if these guys are going to be any good, but let's talk about Trevor Knight first. Trevor Knight the Arizona Hotshots starting quarterback. 
Um, he transferred. He started at Oklahoma, transferred to Texas A&M. The reason why I care about Trevor Knight, if you go back to 2014, Oklahoma played Alabama in the 2014 Sugar Bowl, and Oklahoma smashed Alabama. Yes, Nick Saban led. Alabama got annihilated in the Sugar Bowl, 45-31 to by the Oklahoma Sooners. I will never, ever forget a young Trevor Knight shredding Alabama. He had he was 32 for 44 passing, had four touchdowns, 348 yards. And uh, after that, he kind of faded into obscurity. We never really saw what happened to Trevor Knight. He just kind of disappeared. Uh, you know, Baker Mayfield became the quarterback at Oklahoma. He transferred to Texas A&M. I never saw him again. But I'll never forget that game. And that is why I'm so excited to watch Trevor Knight in the AAF. Now, Luis Perez is the Birmingham Iron quarterback. Actually watched him in the preseason last year. He played for the Rams in the NFL preseason. He didn't make the team. He was on the practice squad very briefly. But he had a really solid preseason. I was actually impressed with him and the way he played. Now, he has a really, really cool story. And first, I got to mention, Luis Perez follows me on Instagram. It's pretty cool. I got excited by that. Um, but Luis Perez didn't play varsity quarterback in high school. Never did. He had to walk onto a junior college, made that team, became their starting quarterback, Played two years in junior college. Then he went to Division II Texas A&M Commerce, a small Division II school. And in 2017, Luis Perez won the Division II National Championship. He actually beat a lot of my friends at Central Washington at a school in Ellensburg. He beat them on the way to his national championship. That is why I'm so excited to watch AF. It's one, it's Trevor Knight, a guy who's had chances in the NFL, played for the Cardinals, never made it. He gets a second chance at a professional football career. And a guy like Lewis Press, he's never really gotten a fair shot. I'm excited to watch if, and see what Lewis Press can do because he did well with the Rams. They just didn't have a roster spot for a third quarterback. And so, Lewis Press, I'm really excited to watch what he has. I have no idea if these guys are good, but that's why this league is fun. It's the unknown. I'm curious to see if these guys can play and excited to watch how it all plays out. The AAF is something that has my attention, and I'm going to cover it a lot in the coming months. Uh, we have two segments left I want to do. First, I want to do this. Um, this is Quick Opinions. Quick Opinions is where I take a couple of straggling stories that aren't really all together one big thing. And put it, I, I, what I do is Quick Opinions is a, a segment where I take a bunch of small little stories that aren't enough to fill a full segment and put them all together. So the first thing I want to talk about is how to fix the Pro Bowl weekend. I have a plan. Here's my idea for how to fix the NFL's Pro Bowl weekend. First, you got to do is just make a list. Make a list of all the best NFL players. Every year, these are my you know, two best quarterbacks, two best running backs, four best wide receivers. We don't need to do a whole big thing. We don't need to name too many guys. Give me a list of guys, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Todd Gurley, the list of the best players that you can name from last season, and we can have a debate. Instead of making players, you know, way too many players, we don't need Dak Prescott involved. We don't need Mitch Trubisky involved. Make a list of the best NFL players from that season and give it to the media so we can debate it. The second thing I would do is don't make these great star players play in a meaningless football game. Instead, start the AAF, the Alliance of American Football season, the weekend before the Super Bowl. Have a weekend where we can watch a meaningful football game like the AAF season opener. We can watch it. It can be exciting. It's meaningful. It's a meaningful game for the fans like me. And we don't have to watch really crappy football with the NFL stars. So what we do is you get the NFL stars, get some kind of award. They get an honor, send them to Hawaii for a vacation, and we get a list to debate. We also get a meaningful football game like the first weekend of the AAF. That's a great way to solve that week off between the 
NFC and AFC championship game and the Super Bowl. The second thing I want to talk about is Wes Welker has been hired by the San Francisco 49ers as their wide receivers coach. This is a great grab. Wes Welker's a fantastic, fantastic receiving mind. He's one of the smartest wide receivers in NFL history, and he really, I think, is going to bring valuable insight to the 49ers. Now, it's worth noting, I have no idea what's going to happen to current wide receivers coach Mike LaFleur. Mike LaFleur is the brother of Matt LaFleur, who is the Packers head coach. And it's been reported that a number three different NFL teams tried to interview Mike LaFleur. The 49ers declined and denied their interview. said, we, we like Mike LaFleur. He's not going anywhere. So I have no idea what's going to happen. He's probably going to get promoted to some kind of role. We have no idea. But you have Mike LaFleur, a great, desirable head coach with the 49ers. And the 49ers are bringing on legendary wide receiver Wes Welker, a guy who has a lot of insight on how to play wide receiver and how to get open with really technical routes. This is a great move for the San Francisco 49ers. Another thing I want to talk about is, uh, this is just really brief. The Miami Hurricanes brought in a new Australian rules punter, Australian league punter. Uh, it's, it's, it, you just got to look at this picture. His name is Lewis Headley. He's 24 years old. He was working in construction in Australia, and now he has a scholarship to go to the University of Miami to be their punter. I cannot wait to watch this guy kick balls. He's buff. He played basically what is a free safety position in Australian football. And Australian football, another thing you probably don't know what that is, that's, prob- that's basically the best comparison is it's a form of rugby where guys don't have pads, they're jacked, they're huge, and they just destroy each other. So I cannot wait to watch Lewis Headley kick punts in an upcoming year for the University of Miami. Another international story is that the University of Virginia has given a scholarship to a German quarterback, Luke Wentz, as in the same last name as Carson Wentz, Luke Wentz. Luke Wentz played for the Paderborn Dolphins. He's from Cologne, Germany. And he's the first foreign quarterback to ever get a scholarship to a Power 5 school. He's not just a German kid in America. He's literally from Germany. He's coming 4,000 miles across the ocean from Germany to go play football at the University of Virginia. I have no idea if he's ever going to become their starting quarterback, but I will say I watched a couple videos. He speaks you know, solid English. That's what people don't realize. People are commenting on stuff like, you know, well, can he speak English? Yeah, in other countries, they learn how to speak English. Uh, we're the only country that really only learns one language. A lot of those other countries know like three or four languages. Um, so I have no idea if Luke Wentz will ever become the head coach for the University of Virginia, but I will say he has a solid arm, and I'm really curious to watch how that story progresses. I can imagine, man, if, if a German quarterback becomes a starting quarterback over here, I can imagine that would be a really cool thing for people of Germany uh, getting to root on their guy. Now, the last thing I want to talk about are uh, Tuesday night in a game between the Pacers and the Lakers. Pacers fans were taunting Lakers players. So while Brandon Ingram was shooting free throws, in reference to the trade rumors for Anthony Davis, Pacers fans were chanting, LeBron will trade you. Like, LeBron will trade you. LeBron will trade you. First of all, that's hilarious. I love that. But the second thing they did was when JaVale McGee went to the free throw line, they said, not worth trading. Not worth trading. I, lo- I think that's hilarious, and I love that. Um, what I thought was weird was the response people had. A lot of people said, that's offensive. That's horrible. How could we ever do anything like that to NBA players? I think we're getting too soft. I, I-, I personally love that. I think it's awesome. I can appreciate some good trash talking, 
And the reason why I love to go to high school basketball games, when I was in high school, I went to basketball games. I love chanting. It's part of the fun of the game. And so not only did I have no problem with the Pacers fans, I thought it was fantastic. That's a great, great act of trash talking in the NBA. And I wish we saw more of that. That is why going to basketball games, going to soccer games, going to football games, why that stuff is fun is being a part of the crowd, having something to make fun of and kind of trash talking that this is harmless. LeBron will trade you, not worth trading. Those are not deeply offensive things. That's hilarious trash talk. And so I am um, I'm a, I'm very much a fan of what the Pacers fans did in this particular instance. Guys, that is quick opinions. I want to talk about one final thing. I don't believe in luck. Many people call the New England Patriots lucky, and, and I simply don't buy it. Now, I have a good friend of mine who works as an engineer in my hometown. And if you live in my hometown, there's literally only like one place an engineer can work. There's one company where engineers can work. And, and one time I told him, you know, hey, you're lucky, man. You live, your, your house is like a couple miles from where you grew up. You're really lucky to work at that company. And suddenly he got really, really intense. He looked at me dead in the eye and said, I'm not lucky, I'm fortunate. And then he told me this long story about how he networked and he worked really hard for his job and used leverage and got himself a position. What I didn't realize, he'd been working as a server. He graduated college. He had an engineering degree and was working waiting tables. But it was worth the investment. He made that job happen. He wanted to be near his family. He wanted to be in my hometown. And when the opportunity came, he was ready to seize that moment. There's a quote that luck is a combination of opportunity and preparedness. And the more I think about it, the more I agree with that, and the less I even believe in the idea of luck at all. So we're left with the New England Patriots. Some people call the Patriots lucky. They say, Tom Brady's the luckiest quarterback of all time. It's ridiculous. It's silly. First of all, nobody wins six Super Bowls on luck. I could see one, you know, Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. That's, he's, he was really lucky to, and fortunate to play with a really great defense like the, the Ravens defense back in the day. But six Super Bowls, nobody's that lucky. And usually the thing people point to when they call the Patriots and when they call Tom Brady lucky, they point to two particular plays. They talk about the tuck rule in 2001 where it looked like Tom Brady fumbled the ball. It was ruled an incomplete pass. It gave the Patriots the ball. They went on to score the, the game-winning field goal and win the game. Kept the call. That call kept the Patriots alive. People said that was lucky. Or against the Seattle Seahawks. Against the Seahawks, on the one-yard line with seconds left, the Seattle Seahawks threw the ball on the one-yard line, threw an interception instead of running the ball with Marshawn Lynch. And people say the Patriots were really, really lucky. The Seahawks made that bad decision. I completely disagree. The Patriots were ready to take advantage of an opportunity when it presented itself. Malcolm Butler in interviews later said he was ready for that pass. He'd seen it on film, and when the, when the Seahawks ran that slant, he knew it was coming. He'd seen it on film and was prepared and ready to take advantage of it. The Falcons once led the Patriots in the Super Bowl 28-3. to Then they made some mistakes. They didn't run the ball, which didn't run down the clock. They had some penalties. They had some key turnovers. And the Patriots took advantage of those mistakes. And I think it's interesting. If you're going to call the Patriots lucky, you must acknowledge if, the, if luck exists and the Patriots are lucky, 
Then what happened with David Tyree when the Giants beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl? David Tyree caught the football on his helmet. If luck exists, the Patriots actually are incredibly unlucky. But we, we can't talk about luck. The Patriots have won six Super Bowls. That's not luck. The Patriots have a great culture in place. They have players that listen to their coaches and execute their game plan. And they're also really prepared. If you slip up, the Patriots are ready to take advantage of your mistake. The opportunity you give them, they're ready to take advantage of it. Luck does not exist. The Patriots are not lucky. They're prepared and they're ready to take advantage of your mistakes. Guys, that is all I have. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Remember, subscribe to Strong Opinion Sports on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on YouTube. You can find the full entire hour-long podcast on YouTube. You can also find my short little breakout clips. Help me grow by telling your friends about this show. Um, I'm going to talk about 10 quarterbacks coming up in the NFL draft. I'm going to see if I can remember them uh, from head, from my brain. So we're going to talk about Will Greer, Jarrett Stidham, Ryan Finley, Gardner Minshew, Drew Locke, Daniel Jones, Gardner, uh, Gardner Minshew, Daniel Jones. Oh, man. Um, I'm blanking. There's, there's 10 quarterbacks I'm going to talk about. My point is I, I can't remember their names. If there's somebody you think I'm missing and you want me to talk about, I'll put a list on. What I'll do is I'll post on YouTube a list of the 10 quarterbacks I'm going to track in the NFL draft. If there's any quarterbacks you want me to pay attention to I haven't named or never talked about before, Please tell me now. Uh, Tyree Jackson's one of them. They're coming to me now. Tyree Jackson, Will Greer. Um, God, there's one name I'm forgetting right now. Uh, he's like the number... Oh, sorry. Drew Locke, obviously. If there's any names I'm not talking about, please reach out to me. Tell me you want me to talk about one of those 10 quarterbacks. And maybe there's a quarterback I'm forgetting. If there's a quarterback you want me to cover leading up to the NFL draft, I'm going to do an entire film review on all 10 quarterbacks, then rank them for the... So it'll be 10 segments of film. And then an 11th segment of me ranking them in order, which one I think is the best to draft, which one is the worst. Dwayne Haskins is another one. I won't forget him. Those are the 10 quarterbacks in things. So Dwayne Haskins, Drew Locke, Will Greer, Jarrett Stidham, Gardner Minshew, Tyree Jackson, Daniel Jones, Ryan Finley. Oh, there's two more. Uh, did I say Will Greer, Daniel Jones? And there's one other guy, and Drew Locke. I have no, I, don't, I probably repeated some names. I have no, I have a list. I'll post it. If there's anybody I haven't mentioned, please. Tell me now, and I'll make a video about them and, and do a whole thing about them. So, guys, thank you so much. I really appreciate you listening, and uh, have a great week. Ba-dum-bum, bam, we are done. Bye.